Good morning. Merry Christmas. I'm Aaron Wilson, one of the pastors here, and I have the privilege of bringing God's Word to us this morning. It's a joy to do that. And I'm calling this, I've actually added a word to the title, not only a song of praise and prophecy, a song of salvation, which has two strains or two verses, one of praise, past praise, and one of future prophecy. And typically when you're preaching a sermon, it's, it's helpful and normal. They teach you this in homiletic class. You want to start with an illustration, some sort of story, something to catch your attention and really to draw you to the text to give you an idea of what we're talking about. I don't have that this morning, but I thought in lieu of illustration and opening illustration, could we just read the Bible a bit more? Would that be okay? You got to say yes. You can't say no to the Bible. So by way of uh, opening illustration, we want to get to know who is this priest, Zechariah. And so I want you to just flip maybe back one page in your Bible to Luke chapter 1 and verse 5. And we're just going to read about Zechariah. I'll make a couple of quick comments, but quickly get us to our text, our text this morning. So in verse 5 of Luke chapter 1. Luke tells us that in the days of Herod, king of Judea, now if that name sounds familiar, this is that Herod. This is the Matthew 1, uh, Matthew 2 Herod. This is the three wise men Herod, uh, the wise men that came to Herod. This is the same Herod that was seeking the baby Jesus to supposedly worship him, but in reality he wanted to kill the baby Jesus and ended up committing an atrocity after the birth of Jesus that we read later in Matthew. This is that Herod. During his days, his rule, there was also a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. I hope you see the contrast there. Wicked, murderous King Herod compared to Zechariah and Elizabeth, righteous before God. Verse 7, but they had no child, Zacharias and Elizabeth, because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. There were probably two dozen companies, two dozen divisions of priests, and there were many priests in those divisions. So about twice a year, a priest's division would be up to serve. And out of those two times, one priest was chosen by lot, and this was Zechariah's turn. It was a very high honor. He would not necessarily go into the Holy of Holies, but he would go up to the Holy of Holies, to the altar of incense, and burn incense to the Lord. And while the incense was burning, if you remember our sermons from Exodus months ago, as the incense was burning, it was a visual symbol and picture of the prayers of the saints. And while the smoke was rising, Zechariah as a priest would also be praying his prayers rising, probably praying for at least two things, praying prayers of thanksgiving, thanking God for his blessings, and praying for the peace of Israel. And there appeared to him, verse, excuse me, verse 10, the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. They were praying and they were waiting for Zechariah. In verse 11, and there appeared to him, most likely while he was still praying, an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid. Just as with any angelic appearance, there is fear and trembling, and there should be. This is how Zechariah knew the angel was there. He didn't sneak up on him, he appeared out of nowhere. 
And Zechariah knew he was there, was troubled, and was fearful. These are angels who go in and out of the presence of God. Next week, when Pastor Chris talks about the angels in the sky, you have the glory of the Lord shining around just one angel. And then when a multitude of angels comes, the whole sky is lit up. It's not angelic glory, it's God's glory reflected on the angels. And no doubt, Gabriel was no different. Hence, Zechariah was troubled and afraid, and so the angel said, do not be afraid. Your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. What, what prayer of Zechariah has been heard? Was it the prayer he was praying in that very moment? Was he praying for the peace of Israel, and the angel came and said, God has heard your prayer and is answering your prayer, and he's beginning this with John the Baptist, your son? Is it a prayer for a son? Was Zechariah maybe still praying that God might give them a child in their old age, knowing he was advanced in years? We're not sure what he was praying for, but the prayer was answered. Maybe it was both. You shall call his name John, Gabriel said, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, verse 15. In fact, Jesus will say later that there's no one greater than John the Baptist, right? He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. I'll go ahead and mention this now. John the Baptist is said to be filled with the Holy Spirit. His mother Elizabeth will later be said to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Zechariah, when he prophesies here in just a moment in our text, is said to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Spirit. This is a spirit-filled family, isn't it? He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Verse 18, this is Zechariah's response. Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am old, an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered him and said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because, here's, here's why Zacharias was struck mute, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Maybe you've read this and you thought that's kind of harsh, Zacharias' response, and yet he is struck mute. Maybe you've read just a few verses down the page in verse 34 where Mary the mother of Jesus was approached by Gabriel, the same angel, with similar news. You will have a child. She did not know a man. And Mary said something similar, verse 34. How will this be since I am a virgin? Why was Mary not disciplined, not punished, and yet Zechariah was? There's a, at least a simple explanation. There's probably a deeper and longer explanation, but we won't have time for that. The explanation was simple. Mary was saying, how will this be? In other words, I don't understand it. Zechariah was saying, I don't believe it. And Gabriel tells us that you are unable to speak because you did not believe my words. Unbelief was Zechariah's problem. Zacharias was maybe had his arms crossed. I don't believe it. Maybe Mary had her arms up and says, I, I can't believe it. Not that I don't, but that I can. I don't understand it. It's one thing to not be able to understand some of the things of the Lord. We all have those things. I, I don't understand the incarnation completely, but I believe it, right? We don't understand the Trinity completely, but we believe it, right? I don't understand how God can save a sinner like me. But praise God, I believe it, right? Zachariah didn't believe it. And he was struck mute. When it's time, verse 23, when it's 
Uh, I'll start in verse 21. When people were waiting for Zechariah, they were wondering at his delay in the temple. Remember, if the priests did anything wrong in the temple during temple worship, it's very possible they could have been struck dead, right? Perhaps the people are waiting. What happened? What did he do? Is he coming out at all? But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. When you see an angelic being, people will know. He kept making signs to them and remained mute. When his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And they, for five months, she kept herself hidden. So perhaps we even see Zechariah beginning to believe because they tried to conceive and they did conceive. Now skip to verse 57, still in Luke chapter 1. The time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. That's exactly what Gabriel said. Your wife will give birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy, megaluno, magnified mercy to her. We're going to come back to this idea of mercy in a moment. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. In other words, those who were there, the family, the friends, the relatives there, would have known that they're going to call him Zechariah. But the mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. Now, why were they making signs to Zechariah? We're not told that he was struck deaf, but that he was mute. But perhaps he was, in fact, deaf and mute. Anyway, they were making signs to him, What do you want to call him? Zechariah asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. You see, he's believing Gabriel now. And they all wondered. And immediately, his mouth was opened, his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. Our sermon this morning will be about this blessing that he sings and says to the Lord. Fear came on all their neighbors And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Fear and wonder, God's word had come to pass. God was there with them. What is God doing? This is all the questions these people were answering. And Zechariah opens his mouth and blesses God, and that brings us to our text this morning, this salvation song of praise and prophecy. It's called a song, it's called a prophecy, it's spirit-filled, it talks about past actions of God, it's talking about what God will do in the future, it has prophecy in it, it has praise in it, it's a little bit of everything, which makes this kind of hard to understand as a whole, but I hope that I can help make this clear this morning. I'm dividing this into two sections, verse 68 through 75, which is really one long sentence in the Greek, and another, verse 76 through 79, is another long Greek sentence. Two things. Number one is past praise, past praise or praise for the past, which is salvation from enemies. And then secondly, 76 through 79, foretelling the future, that is, the forgiveness of sins. So let's look at the praise for the past. Here's why I'm calling it praise for the past. Number one, because all of the verbs here, all of this is in the past tense. He's speaking in verse 68, he has visited, he has redeemed, he has raised up. That we would be, we should be saved. It's all past tense verses there. There's also, within this whole song, by one count, over 40 Old Testament references or allusions. Over 40. We won't have time to look at them all. I will mention several of them. So if you like to take cross-references in your Bible, be ready to write those down. I, talk, I, I call this past praise because he speaks of the Abrahamic covenant. And again, Zacharias is speaking in terms of done deal, the first half of this passage. 
John Piper in his sermon on this passage says, Zechariah went from not believing Gabriel at all to now believing it so faithfully that he speaks of God's deliverance as being a done deal. So let's look at this salvation song of praise and prophecy. Verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. That's how he began. This is a common Old Testament expression. It usually introduced a song of thanksgiving. Psalm 72 verse 18, the psalmist says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Or in 1 Chronicles 16 verse 36, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And all the people said, Amen, and praised the Lord. He's blessing the Lord with this song. And again, he's going to speak of a lot of past tense redemption, past tense salvation. If he's not speaking directly about God and Old Testament redemption, he's at least certainly speaking out of it. He's familiar with what God has done, and he's using verbiage, and he's using verses that reference God delivering Israel out of slavery and delivering David out of trouble. He's going to quote the Psalms in this praise of God as he's anticipating God's, uh, Jesus' future salvation. He says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. What's the first thing he has done? He has visited has visited. This has the idea of visiting someone who is afflicted with the intention of help and care. That's the idea here. Sometimes this word visit is used to visit with punishment, to visit with wrath. But here it's used to visit the afflicted with help and care. We're going to see the word visit again in verse 38. In fact, you might mark that, verse 68 and verse 78. You have visit. You have salvation appearing in verse 69, verse 71, verse 77. You have mercy appearing in verse 72 and verse 78. All these repeated themes in this psalm that we're going to look at. In Exodus 3 and 4, maybe you can remember way back when Pastor Chris was beginning the series, when the Lord was calling Moses to bring his people out of Egypt And God told Moses, I have come down to deliver them. When Moses and Aaron went back to the elders and to the people of Israel to tell them what God had said and perform the signs that God had told them to perform, Exodus 4 verse 31, it says, The people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that they had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. God is in the business of visiting His people. Why did He come to visit? To redeem them, verse 68. He has visited and redeemed His people. This is why this is a good visit. He's not here to punish. He's here to redeem. This is redemption. This is salvation. And we're going to see in a moment it's salvation from their enemies. This visit, this redemption is what the people were waiting for. When we sing tonight during the candlelight service that Christ has come, this is the visit from Christ for which they had been waiting for years. Again, in Luke chapter 2, just the following chapter, you might just turn the page and look there. Both Simeon and Anna serving in the temple when Jesus was brought to them for his dedication in the temple. Luke 2.25, the man named Simeon in Jerusalem, he was a righteous and devout man waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was waiting for this visit. And look in verse 37, Anna, the prophetess, did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer day and night for years. Coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This visit from the Lord Jesus had been anticipated for years and years. Verse 69, not only has He visited His people and redeemed His people, verse 69, He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David. Again, more Old Testament references. We just don't have time to look at all of them. 
He references the house of David earlier in chapter 1, verse 27, when describing Joseph. He says that Mary was a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. He's putting Jesus in this Matthew 1 genealogy. He speaks of both David and this horn of salvation in Psalm 132. Psalm 132, verse 17, the psalmist says, There I will make a horn to sprout for David. We're going to talk about that idea of sprouting in just a moment. In Psalm 18, David says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. What is this horn? What is this horn of salvation? The word horn carries the idea of strength, and not just strength, but typically it it envisioned the strength of a fighting animal, an ox or something with large horns. This mighty ox with its large horns would be imagined to perhaps charge forward against the enemy, thrusting its horns and its power through the enemy, piercing and pounding the enemy in order to save. This is what Israel was waiting for. They're wanting a king to do this. We want a powerful king to come and to conquer. Perhaps they're still waiting, even in Zechariah's day, a king to overthrow the godless Roman Empire. And we know that one day a king will come to conquer, don't we? Revelation 19, we know that the Lord Jesus will one day come to conquer, riding on a white horse with a sharp sword coming from his mouth to strike down the nations. But not yet. Not yet. This isn't the strong king they're expecting. Before the king of kings comes to conquer, our king of kings must come to be killed. You see, the mystery of this gospel that Zechariah didn't fully know yet the apostles barely understood it, that Jesus would have to die. He, Jesus continued to have to convince them throughout his ministry. But the mystery of the gospel will be that the mighty horn and strength of salvation will be a humble servant king. The strong, horn-piercing beast will be instead a spotless lamb who will himself be pierced and crushed and wounded stricken, smitten, and afflicted. This is the horn of salvation. God is rising up. Now remember, verse 68, the Lord has visited and redeemed. Redemption means a ransom, and a ransom means a price was paid. The Lamb will come to pay the price of the sin of those who believe. And again, giving Nod to next week's sermon, this mighty king will not arrive on a throne, but he'll arrive in a lowly manger. This is the past salvation that Zacharias is referring to. And then there's a prophesied or a proven salvation. Look at verse 70. Zacharias is saying the prophets from of old have, talking, have spoken about this. It's not me. This is not new with me. Verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies in the hand of all who hate us. I mentioned Psalm 18 where David said, The Lord is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold, the horn of my salvation. In the very next verse, David says in Psalm 18, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. The Lord is sending the horn of salvation to save us from our enemies. Psalm 106 references the uh, exodus, Israel coming out of Egypt. And in verse 10 of Psalm 106, it says that God saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. Old Testament allusions. Zacharias is thinking, he knows his Old Testament history, he knows that God has redeemed and visited his people. How, do, how might we read the Psalms in terms of our enemies? How does God save us from our enemies? Let's pause here for a moment of application. 
when we read in the Psalms, when we read in the Bible, God's saving us from our enemies. Do, do you have enemies? Do you have literal enemies, people that are against you? I, I don't know that I ever have. I'm, I'm sure there's plenty of people that don't like me. That's okay. I bet I wouldn't count them my enemy, but maybe you do. Maybe you do. I've known people who were wrongly accused, people coming after them, slandering them. But do you have a literal enemy? We at least have Satan, our enemy, right? Luke will, uh, Luke will refer to him later in chapter 10. God saves us from our enemy, Satan. We do have the enemy, the world. The world is our enemy. We are not to be friends with the world, the world's systems, the world's values. What the world says is good and right is an enemy to us. Unless we think, well, I'll just escape and run away from the world and seclude myself. If you're a believer, you still have your fallen flesh, don't you? Your flesh is at enmity with you. Your fleshly desires against the desires of the Spirit. So believers, we have many enemies, even though we are in Christ. But unbeliever, there's even a greater enemy you need to be concerned about. If you're here and you're not a Christian, the Bible says that you're the enemy. That you're the enemy. If you're an unbeliever, you are at enmity with God. He is not your friend. You are His enemy. That's bad news. But the good news is Romans 5 verse 10 says that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. So we have a past salvation that Zechariah is referring to. It's prophesied a salvation that the prophet spoke to. And then look at verse 72. This salvation is purpose. There's a purpose for this salvation. The purpose is to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant. What is His holy covenant? Verse 73, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham. That's the covenant. The oath that He swore to Abraham. So again, Zechariah is looking backwards. He's anticipating Christ's coming. He's anticipating his son being the forerunner, but he can't help but looking, look backwards at this purposed salvation. We're going to come back to this word mercy in a moment, so mark that there in verse 72. It's going to show up in verse 78. Psalm 105 says that God remembers his covenant forever, the covenant that he made with Abraham Last week, Pastor Paul preached on Mary's Magnificat, Mary's song, and she ends by talking about God remembering His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring. That's the covenant that Mary was trusting in. Verse 74 tells us more about the purpose of this salvation. To show His mercy and that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve Him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. Think about that for a moment. Look back up at verse 69. He has raised up a horn of salvation. He has visited and redeemed us. Verse 71, that we should be saved. Verse 74, so that we might serve Him. We should be saved, Zechariah says, so that we might serve. Do you remember that from our series in Exodus? We're rescued to worship. We're saved so that we can serve. Why does God save sinners? To serve Him. To serve Him. We're saved so that we might serve Him in holiness because we've been set apart. We now belong to the Lord. We're saved to serve Him in righteousness. That's how we live. Holiness is who you are in Christ. Righteousness is how we live for Christ. We're saved to serve. Are, are you saved this morning, my friends? Are you saved? If the answer is yes, are you serving? If you're saved, you need to be serving. Well, I'm saved, Aaron, but I don't serve. No, you're saved to serve. Are you saved? If you're a member of this church, you're saved, you're a believer, are you serving. If not, why not? We are saved to serve. That's been from the beginning. This is Zechariah speaking of a past salvation, deliverance from our enemies, being saved to serve. Now let's look at the second half of this. 
This is where it comes into the future. Future, foretelling the future, the forgiveness of sins. This is where it starts to make maybe a little more sense as we understand why John the Baptist was coming. And by the way, this in verse 76 is the only time Zacharias mentions his son, John the Baptist. This, this praise, this song, was in response to the birth of John the Baptist. But he only mentions him one time. Just as Pastor Paul mentioned last week, Mary's song reflected and deflected glory from herself back onto the Lord. Zacharias' song does the same. He only mentions his son one time here in verse 36. Let's look at the second half of this, the foretelling the future, the forgiveness of sins. Zacharias speaks about a preparation for salvation. A preparation for salvation. And you, child, he's speaking to his son. Maybe he had him in his arms, the little baby newly born. You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. John the Baptist is here called the prophet of the Most High. Gabriel told Mary earlier in chapter 1 that her son, Jesus, would be called the Son of the Most High. How will John the Baptist prepare the way? How is John the Baptist to prepare the way for the coming King, for the Son of the Most High? Verse 77 tells us, to give knowledge of salvation to his people. John the Baptist is coming to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their Sins. What is the knowledge of salvation? What is at the core of salvation? At the heart of God's work of salvation is the forgiveness of sins. If you want to know what is salvation in a word, it is forgiveness. Forgiveness. And this is what John the Baptist came to prepare them for. Here lies the true enemy, my friend. The true enemy wasn't Egypt, though they were an enemy. The true enemy in the Old Testament wasn't Babylon, though they were enemies. The true enemy now is not the Roman Empire. The true enemy that we all face is sin. It's sin. Again, next week the angels are going to cry out, peace on earth. There can be no peace on earth unless there's forgiveness. Forgiveness one commentator said, is a precondition to peace. You want peace with God? You must be forgiven. Your sins must be forgiven. This was John the Baptist's consistent message. Luke 3 tells us that John proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That is, your sins are forgiven as a result of a repentant heart. You're coming to me for baptism? Show me that you've repented. Show me that you've been forgiven of your sins. John the, pa- John the Baptist is preparing a people. He's getting a people ready. He's not getting people saved. He's getting people ready. His baptism is a promise of a greater baptism that John says, offered by Jesus in the Holy Spirit. John's baptism, we know, was a sign for those who were repentant and ready for the Lord. But Acts 19 says John's baptism wasn't enough. We must be in Christ, in, baptized in His Spirit. John the Baptist was preparing a people for salvation. And there is, in a real sense, a preparation for salvation. If you're asking, is there something I must do to be saved? Well, if we're thinking about doing good works, we would all say, no, there's nothing you must do in order to be saved. There's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. But is there something I must do? Yes, there is. Several things, actually. You must realize your need for salvation, right? You must recognize your sin and your guilt, You must repent of your sin. Turn from it and turn to Christ. Repentance here, this is a change of mind that results in a change of direction. The the kids know this in Awana. It's a U-turn. I'm changing my mind about the direction I'm going, and I'm turning from my sin, from my destruction, to the Lord. You realize your need, you recognize your sin, you repent of your sin, and you receive the forgiveness offered by Christ. Have you done that? Do you have this salvation? 
There's a well-known movie that has a humorous scene about a couple of men driving the wrong way down an interstate in the middle of the night. They're as lost as they can be, and another car is across the median going the right way, but they're both going the same way, and they're yelling out across the median, you're going the wrong way. And the men, oblivious to their danger, said they think we're going the wrong way. How do they know which way we're going? John the Baptist comes to say, you're going the wrong way. The preacher is behind the pulpit saying to the people, you're going the wrong way. The way you're going, if it's your own way, is the way of destruction. Turn from your sin, turn to Christ, and we'll see at the end of our passage today that He is the way. He is the way. So Zechariah speaks of this preparation for salvation in verse 76 and 77. Now, now look at the motivation for salvation. It's getting good here. The motivation for salvation. Why does God save sinners? Why did God send John the Baptist to prepare the people for Jesus? Why did God send Jesus to save sinners? Look at verse 60, uh, 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God. This ought to encourage you, beloved. If you're not a believer, this ought to encourage you. Mercy is the motive. You see that? Mercy sends the messenger. Mercy is sending John the Baptist to prepare the way. Mercy is sending the knowledge of salvation to sinners. Mercy is what forgives the sinners of their sin. Mary knew this. Again, they're saying the same thing. Paul mentioned this last week. She said, God's mercy is for those who fear Him. He does this in remembrance of His mercy. Mary mentioned mercy twice in her song. Zacharias mentions mercy twice in his song. And Luke mentions it one other time in Luke in this chapter. Five times in Luke chapter 1 you have this theme of mercy. Mercy is magnified here. It's said of, it's said of Elizabeth that God has magnified His mercy to her in verse 58. Isn't His mercy wonderful? It is, but it gets even better. It's not just mercy. Look back at the passage. It is tender mercy. Tender mercy. This is my favorite Greek word. I don't know many, but this is my favorite one and my favorite one to say and my favorite one to teach the kids. It's splankna. Splankna. It almost sounds like a splat. This word splankna means from the guts, from the bowels. It is a deep-seated feeling of compassion. And it's used all through the New Testament. And it's a beautiful word. This splankna, this compassion from the bowels, this is the same compassion that the Good Samaritan had on the wounded and stranded traveler left for dead in Luke 10. This is the same compassion the father has for his prodigal son when he sees him coming still at a distance. This is the same compassion that Jesus has on the three-day hungry crowd that had been following him when he blesses the fish and the bread and feeds the 4,000. This is the compassion he had on the sick, so he healed them. This is the compassion he had on the blind, so he gave them sight, Matthew 20. This is the compassion he had on his wandering, helpless, hopeless crowds who Jesus said were like sheep without a shepherd. So he had splankna, compassion on them. And this is the merciful compassion that James speaks of in chapter 5, verse 11. The Lord is full of mercy and very compassionate. Do you know this mercy, this tender mercy of the Lord? Do you know it? Have you received His tender mercy? Again, maybe you're here and you don't know the Lord. You're not a believer. And maybe the thought of acknowledging your sin and confessing your sin and admitting your sin to you is unthinkable and unimaginable. I, I would never do that. I can't ever do that. Well, let me tell you what should be most incredible to you is that the God who created you is poised and ready and leaning in, ready to show you His compassionate mercy. Did not Jesus say, Come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest? 
You know what qualifies you to come to Christ? Your sin. Your need. Come to Him. Come to His tender mercy. Believe it. Dr. Holmes, the president of our BMA seminary just down the road in Jacksonville, was telling David, Pastor Dave and I a story not long ago about a couple he was visiting. The man was a member of a Baptist church, supported the seminary. His wife attended with him, but she was raised Catholic and was still Catholic. And they were talking about sin, talking about the gospel, and she began to weep. And he asked her why she was weeping. And she said, I'm weeping because of my sin. I'm weeping because I'm, I'm hopeless. God could never forgive all of my sin. How could He ever? How can I know that my sins are forgiven? I don't believe, she said, that God could ever forgive me. And so Dr. Holmes shared with her the gospel, that all of our sins can be forgiven in Christ Jesus And this lady that night received Christ as her Savior. She received the forgiveness of sins and she continued to weep. And he asked her again, now why are you weeping? And she said, well, first I didn't believe that God would forgive my sins and now I can't believe that Jesus would die to forgive me of my sins. Are you a sinner? Do you need the mercy of the Lord? Then come to Him for tender compassion. John the Baptist would prepare the way for this forgiveness, for this tender mercy. He would say to everyone, look, behold, we saw it in John, didn't we? The Lamb of God who takes away our sin. John the Baptist is now coming to point to a sunrise. John the Baptist is coming to point to a sunrise. What do I mean? Look at verse 78. We have the preparation for salvation We have the motivation behind God's salvation. Now let's look at the means of salvation. How is God going to save sinners? How can God forgive anyone? He sends the Son, verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. That's our word visit again. Remember when it appeared in verse 68? Now it comes again. There's another visitation. This tender mercy, this compassion of the Lord that comes from His bowels, as it were, this comes from the sunrise. We know that His mercies are new every morning. Here, His mercy is said to rise up like a sun. Anatole, that which springs up. It's like a branch or a sprout springing up. Or it could be used here like the sunrise springing up. Listen to how the Old Testament, again, I told you this is full of Old Testament allusions. Listen to how the Old Testament uses a branch springing up as well as light springing up. Isaiah 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear up. That's this idea of springing up a branch. Jeremiah 23, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up, there's our idea here, a righteous branch for David, and he will reign as king and deal wisely. Then Malachi uses the image of a sunrise. For you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. John the Baptist comes to say the sun has risen, the sun is here The imagery here, Howard Marshall says it this way, the imagery here is of the Davidic Messiah, the shoot from Jesse, the star from Jacob, who is here to visit men from on high from the dwelling place of God. God is sending His Son to shine His light on the faces of His people. We often think of Easter sunrise services. Have you ever been one? Here, Zechariah is talking about a Christmas sunrise service. The sun has risen. The light has come. We sing a lot about the light. We'll celebrate the light tonight visually in our candlelight service. But why do we need the light? Why do we need the sunrise? The last verse tells us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. We need the light because we walk in darkness. We need the light because we sit in darkness. We need the light because we simply cannot see because of our sin. This is why sin is such an enemy. 
if you are aging like I am, you know the difficulty of seeing well at night. I thought that was something for old people. They can't see at night, so they don't drive at night. But two nights ago, Anita and I are driving at night in the rain on the way to the choir party, and I, I can't see the road. I can't see the yellow line. I can't see the white line. I can't tell the ditch from the pavement. I couldn't see because of the darkness. I had to have light. And for a moment there, I, I was driving blindly, as it were, in the dark. But this is the blight, the lack of the light that all of us are in without Christ. We're walking in our sin. We don't know what direction we're going in. And Jesus comes as the sunrise to give light and to give guidance. Look at verse 79. And this will conclude Zechariah's song. He comes to give light to those who sit in darkness. This idea of giving light is where we get our, our word epiphany, like something coming to mind or coming to light. But it has the idea of appearing, appearing out of nowhere. It's only used three other times in the Bible. Once it's used of light, when Paul is talking about before their shipwreck, the sun and the stars did not appear. They did not epiphany. And so there was no light and guidance. And the other two times, Titus uses this in chapter 2 when he says the grace of God has appeared The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. And then in chapter 3, verse 4, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. The coming of Jesus, the sunrise of Jesus is the coming of grace. It's the appearance of grace. It's the appearance of the goodness of God. It's the appearance and the sunrise of the loving kindness of God our Savior. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. The coming of this mercy. Light isn't appreciated unless you're in the dark. And the necessity of light cannot be understood unless you've experienced the misery of darkness. This darkness that the people are sitting in. Now we know John speaks about a people who walk in darkness. Here the idea of sitting in darkness, we're settled in darkness. Maybe it's the darkness of death. Maybe it's the darkness of mourning. It's no doubt spiritual darkness. The darkness of bondage, both Literal and figurative. He said it's the darkness of the shadow of death. That shadow of death in the Hebrew is the deepest, darkest expression of dark. That phrase is used of darkness before God created the light. That is the darkness we're in. Again, John speaks of walking in darkness. John 8 and John 12 and in 1 John Paul the Apostle even says that not only were you walking in darkness, but that you were darkness before you came to Christ, but now you are light. And this is expressed just as clearly by Matthew. Listen to what Matthew says at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Matthew chapter 4, verse 16. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Christmas morning is the dawning of the light. It's the coming of Christ. It's the coming of mercy. It's the coming of compassion. It's the coming of forgiveness. It's the coming of salvation. And maybe we should just say it has come as we'll sing and celebrate tonight. Christ has come. It not only comes to shine light, but it comes to guide our feet. The last phrase. The light comes to those who sit in darkness, and it comes to guide our feet. If John the Baptist is guiding people to Jesus, Jesus is guiding people to the Father. John can only point to Jesus, but Jesus not only points to the Father, but He provides a way to the Father. John will proclaim salvation, right? But Jesus will provide salvation. And this guidance is necessary. This guidance is necessary. I just told you that we're going the wrong way. We don't know our destruction. Romans 3 says the way of peace we do not know apart from Christ. If you're here and you lack peace, you lack that mercy, you lack that forgiveness, there is no peace. You don't know the way. The good news is that Jesus came, the guiding light, the sunrise to show us the way, not only to show us the way to God, 
but he became the way to God, which is why he said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. My friend, if you're here and you're in the darkness and you don't know the Lord, if you're here and you're lost and you don't know the way, Jesus is the way. His way is that he lived the perfect life you could not live. That's the way. The way is that he died the sacrificial death on the cross that you and I deserve because we couldn't live the way we should. And the way is that Jesus rose from the grave, another rising that proves his life and death was enough to save any sinner who calls on him. Do you know him? Do you know him? Has the sun risen on the darkness of your sin? Has your sin been forgiven? Has mercy been shown from the compassion of the Lord? We're about to sing that I once was lost in darkness and light. I thought I knew the way, but the sin that promised us joy in life only led us to the grave. Maybe you're here and you're enjoying your sin, not realizing it's taking you the wrong way down that road. Turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. A couple of weeks ago, our family attended for the ninth time in 10 years. It's our Christmas tradition, the concert, Christmas concert by Andrew Peterson. The concert is called Behold the Lamb of God. And it's a concert where he sings from the Old Testament through the New Testament of the promised redemption of God that's brought to fruition in the coming of Christ. And one of the last songs is titled, Behold the Lamb of God. Listen to the lyrics. We who walk in darkness deep now see the light of morning. The mighty God, the Prince of Peace, a child to us is born. We're wanderers in the wilderness. Oh, here a voice is crying, prepare the way, make straight the path. Your king has come to die. And then the chorus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away your sin. Behold the Lamb of God, the life and light of men. Behold the Lamb of God who died and rose again. You hear the gospel? Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away our sin sin. Christ has come. The sun has risen. Mercy is here. Tender compassion is ready and waiting for all who will come to him. You don't have to come back tonight to receive the light, to know Christ has come. I'm telling you now, he's come. He's come for you, O sinner. Would you come to him? If you're here and you don't know the Lord, please come and speak to one of the pastors. Or if you came with a friend who knows the Lord, talk to them. How can I know Jesus Christ. And whether you know Him or not, come back tonight because we're going to celebrate the fact that Christ has come. And as the children reminded us, if you're in Christ, all is well. Amen? All is well. The light has come. The sun has risen. Christ is come. Let's pray. Father, this is a lot in Zechariah's prophecy, his song, his celebration, anticipation, his looking back at how you redeemed your people, his looking forward at how his son, John the Baptist, will prepare a way for your people. But as those who are now on the other side of the cross, were not only on the other side of the birth of Christ and the life of Christ and the death of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ, we anticipate a second coming. We know that one day the skies will split and Christ will return no longer to bring peace, but to bring that sword, to come to conquer the kingdoms who have rejected Him. And we pray that as a people we would be ready, that we would find ourselves hidden in the tender mercies of God our Savior. Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for his life, his death, and his resurrection. And may many call on him this morning for salvation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.